And as we have just sung, we'll be reading from Psalm 68. We'll be reading the first 18 verses of Psalm 68. Hear the word of God. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain, before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode, yes, where the Lord will dwell forever? The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascend on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Then turning to the New Testament, we'll be reading from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, who from the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
Jesus Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. When we turn the page from Ephesians chapter 3 to Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we move from where Paul had been focusing on doctrine to where the apostle is now focusing on applying the truths that he had already taught in the first three chapters of his letter. And I think it'll be helpful if we go back to the first verse of this chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, to see where the apostle is leading us. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called. We are called to respond to the glorious grace and the truth that we have received in Christ Jesus by living for the glory of God. Paul calls this walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, naturally, that includes your own personal sanctification. But in tonight's passage, we see that Christ's plan is not simply for you as an individual, that you would be sanctified. Rather, Christ's plan is that we would mature and be made complete as the family of God. Yet, and please mark this well, just as your pursuit of individual holiness is not a self-help project, our pursuit of maturity together as the family of God is not a self-help project. God is at work. God is the one who has filled us with the Holy Spirit, both individually and as a church. And it is God, God through Christ, who is building his church. Look at verse 7 with me. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. See, it is not enough to be called to practice humility and gentleness and patience and love, although, of course, Christ does that. But it's not enough for us to be called to do these things if we also have to supply the means of achieving this on our own. Left to ourselves, we will never produce the fruit of the Spirit. The good news is that Christ not only calls us to a radically different form of life together as the people of God, he also supplies the resources that we need in order to get there and to begin to live it out. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. As Thomas Winger points out, the term grace, unlike the expression spiritual gifts, is not the language of diverse gifts, but of common salvation. It's a singular word. The grace that is given to each of us is the one faith and the one baptism by which the one God became father of us all, as Paul put it back in verses 5 and 6. Uh, the reason why this is important to grasp is that when Paul speaks of the measure of Christ's gift, he is not suggesting that some receive a larger measure and others receive a smaller measure, as though Christ looks out upon all our needs and he apportions out grace to match those needs. That is not what Paul is talking about. We are not the measure. Christ is. 
Therefore, the gift of grace is exceedingly abundantly above everything that we as the people of God could ever need. And here is the key point. It isn't just by grace that you have been saved. It is by grace that you live as an individual Christian. And it is by grace that the family of God grows together in love and in unity of the Spirit and in the bonds of peace. Now, the Apostle Paul is going to unpack this truth about the Messiah by referring back to a messianic passage from Psalm 68. Psalm 68, verse 8, reads this. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's actually the verse as Paul quotes it. This can be confusing, so let's take it step by step. The psalmist is saying three things. First, he, that is the Messiah, ascended on high. That's what we've been talking about in Sunday school this morning. Second, when the Messiah ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And third, when the Messiah ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. But the psalm is portraying the Messiah as a conquering king. And when the king goes out and he conquers, he takes the spoils of war. And he gives some of those spoils to his own people as gifts. That's the background image. And we don't have to wonder who the psalmist is talking about, because Paul tells us in verses 9 and 10. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Ephesians 4 with me. In saying... He ascended. What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, that is the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Uh, This is a very important truth about Christ. It's a truth that's often neglected in the modern church in North America. Often we portray Jesus, he dies on the cross, that's vital. We celebrate that at Easter. Uh, He rose from the dead, right? That's actually what we're celebrating at Easter, that whole complex of his death and resurrection. But we have to remember that when Christ ascends into heaven, he isn't simply going away. Rather, he's ascending to the throne room of the universe, and he's sitting down at the right hand of his Father. He is already right now ruling over every single molecule in the entire universe. Right now, the man Christ Jesus is reigning over everything at God's right hand. But who exactly are the host of captives that the Messiah is leading in his train? I think the answer might surprise you. Yes, it is true that Christ conquers the principalities and powers, but that actually doesn't fit with the passage at all. Certainly doesn't fit with Psalm 68. We should assume that Paul is quoting Psalm 68 both correctly and in context. Now, it is true that the apostles, sometimes when they quote the Old Testament, they quote them in light of new developments in redemptive history so that they fill them out in new ways. 
But you should always start by assuming that the apostles are quoting the Old Testament correctly and in a way that fits with the original context. Well, what is that context? As Psalm 68 was read in your hearing this evening, I'm sure that most of you heard echoes of the Exodus. It's very clearly there throughout the psalm. Among other things, the psalm is celebrating the Lord delivering his people out of Egypt, leading them through the wilderness, and giving them his law on Mount Sinai. Uh, Let me remind you of just two of the verses from Psalm 68, that is verses 7 and 8. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. So that Exodus imagery is just woven in there into Psalm 68. Now, if we map what Psalm 68 is saying about the coming Messiah against the background of the Exodus imagery, which is clearly an important part of the psalm, we will quickly grasp that the Lord does not lead the Egyptians in his train. As the Lord is moving through the wilderness, it is not the Egyptians who are being brought behind him. It is the Israelites. The Egyptians are destroyed, first with the plagues and then with the Red Sea crushing down on their army. The Egyptians are destroyed. It is the Israelites who are being led in the train of Almighty God. So if we keep that that, uh, analogy working the same way, now that Paul is applying this not just to God Almighty, but specifically to the Messiah, we ought to assume the same thing is taking place. It is the Jewish people of God in the in Psalm 68, who are led through the wilderness in the Lord's train. And when Paul quotes verse 8 and applies it to Jesus, who is it that Jesus is leading in his victory train? Well, I don't want to be overly dogmatic, but the parallel suggests it's us. You are in Christ's victory train. We, the people of God, are the captives who are being led in the Lord's train. And isn't this one of the things that we confess about Jesus, our King? Right, this fits with our broader theology. When our shorter catechism asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? It answers, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and all our enemies. So in one sense, we are in the victory parade as those whom Christ has brought captive. Aren't you glad that when he did that, he didn't crush us, rather he subdued us to himself? And in another sense, we are in Christ's victory parade as those who are being honored with him. We are in fact both. We are there as his loyal subjects, but there is another sense in which we represent the spoils of Christ's victory. Uh, I've mentioned the Roman triumph to you before. Uh, I think this is actually a very important analogy to keep in mind. It's what the first century people would have thought when they heard about Christ's second coming, particularly about the rapture. The idea of a Roman triumph is it's a great victory praise, the highest honor that a Roman could receive. And so a great general like Pompey would go off and win a battle. 
And what he would do is he would send back messengers after he wins the battle. Uh, There's no CNN, there's no Fox News, there's no internet. The people back home want to know what happened. So these messengers would come and they would pronounce, Good news! Good news! Pompeii has been victorious over our enemies. And that word for good news is euangelion, the word for which we get the gospel. It is the exact same language and the same imagery. So the messengers go forth and announce the good news that Pompeii has won. And then Pompeii, when he returns to Rome, instead of coming right into the city, would wait outside the city. They're going to prepare this great triumph for him. And he would call his loyal supporters out of the city to be with him so that they would march in the parade with him. They would be celebrated as though they had helped him win the battle, although they had stayed in Rome the whole time. That's precisely the imagery of the rapture. God calls us out to meet Jesus in the air, not so we will go away, but so we will return to earth with him in his triumphant victory parade, so that you will be honored with Jesus when he returns to earth. And yet someone else would ordinarily be in that Roman victory parade. Normally, conquering generals would put on display some of the wealth that they had captured, including representatives of the people they had overcome, particularly high military officers they conquered. They'd come back in chains, as it were. The general would be saying, see, I conquered all of them, and look at some of the tokens of the wealth I am bringing back to Rome. Here's the interesting thing. In Christ's second coming, we are both. We are both the spoils of his victory. He has conquered us, subduing us to himself. And we are also his loyal subjects. We are both. Thankfully, rather than conquering us by trampling us into the dust, Christ has conquered us by subduing us to himself and turning us into his loyal and grateful subjects. Third, when the Messiah ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. Now this is what conquering heroes do. They take some of the spoils that they have won in battle, and they give those spoils to the people whom they rule. Do you see how this fits together? You are the spoils, therefore you are also the gifts. Jesus has subdued you to himself, and now when he's looking for gifts to give to the church, he turns around and gives you, that is, he gives all of us, back to the church as gifts. We are both the spoils that Christ has conquered and his loyal subjects. As I say, this might be a bit surprising at first, but Christ gives us to his church as the spoils of his own triumph. We frequently think about Christ giving gifts to us as individuals. Uh, Perhaps the Lord has given you a gift of administration, a gift of encouragement, right? All manner of gifts that God has, more than are enumerated in the Bible. He's given you gifts to do particular things yourself. But I want you to realize that before he gives gifts to you, he gives you as a gift, That's what Paul's talking about tonight. Before we look at the gifts that he gives to us, 
We need to see that he gives us his gifts to one another. We are the spoils that he has taken. We are in turn the gifts that Christ gives to his church. Uh, Look at verse 11 with me. Isn't this precisely what Paul is saying in verse 11? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. See, Christ does not simply give gifts to the apostles. God gives the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers in their person to you as a gift. And this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, for reasons that become obvious, I think, in a moment, um, these are gifts that are associated with the word that God is spreading through his people. It is, in fact, true that he has given all of us. Every single Christian is part of the body and is given as a gift for the building up of that body. The apostles and the prophets are foundational. It is through the apostles and the prophets that God gives us his perfect word. Now, many commentators have pointed out the interesting connection in Psalm 68, which looks forward to the Messiah, but which seems to do so against the backdrop of the Exodus, and particularly the Lord descending upon Mount Sinai. When the Lord comes to Mount Sinai, he calls Moses to ascend up to the mountain where he gives Moses the law. It is very, very common in Western history, right up to today, to refer to Moses as Israel's lawgiver. But I want you to see tonight that that's wrong. Moses is not the lawgiver of Israel. Moses is the law receiver of Israel. Almighty God is the one who gives Moses the law. The reason why that's important to see is so you get the contrast between Jesus and Moses. See, Jesus is not merely a second Moses figure. Moses ascends up to the mountain to receive the law. Jesus, when he ascends to heaven, he gives the law. And he gives the apostles and the prophets and evangelists and the pastor teachers so that that law, that word of God, will be spread. Right? Pastors and teachers are not given fresh words from God. But God sends out evangelists even today to proclaim the word of God to those who do not know, to those who do not yet believe that they would be called into the church. And he gives the church with pastor teachers who are called to teach the entire counsel of God's word. It is important to pay attention to that vital difference between Moses and Jesus, lest we become confused. Jesus is God's word. Jesus is God's final word. And Jesus is the giver of God's word. And Jesus is the one who gives the church evangelists and pastor teachers to proclaim and explain God's word to his people. Uh, Perhaps I should say something about that expression, pastor teachers. Uh, Here they have uh, an ESV, shepherds and teachers. I I don't think that's really that confusing to you. Most of you realize the term pastor is simply a term for shepherd. We would say under shepherds. Jesus Christ is the great and the good shepherd of his people. But it's actually in Greek, the, the, the way this structure works is you don't have pastors and teachers. Rather, pastor teacher is one office. Just like you have an evangelist, you have a pastor teacher. 
That's actually helpful to remind ourselves of because we live at a time where there's a great deal of confusion over what pastors are primarily called to do. According to God's word, the primary calling of pastor teachers is to be those who teach God's word, all of it, to God's people. That, of course, is not everything that pastors do, but it is at the heart of what pastors do. This is my primary job in this church, to teach you the whole counsel of God that he has revealed to us through his prophets and apostles. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, pastor-teachers are often called ministers of the word, because that's what's central to our calling. But here's what you need to see in this passage. God's purposes do not end with ministers. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Please notice the direction here. All the people he's mentioning as gifts are intended for the purpose of something else. The church, that is the body of Christ, does not exist for the sake of pastor-teachers. Pastor-teachers exist for the sake of the church. It's one of the things we're trying to flesh out as we're looking for a man to be an associate pastor in our church. Does someone primarily think of themselves as what I want to do? Or do they understand that God is setting them apart to serve someone else? First and foremost, to serve Christ, but secondly, to serve Christ by serving the people of God. It is not about the pastor-teachers. It is about the pastor-teachers that God is sending us to build up. It's about that the church. The word picture I find most helpful when we think about the entire church being equipped for ministry is to compare the church with an orchestra. So get an idea of an orchestra in your minds. How does this work in the life of the church? Christ, through his prophets and apostles, gives us the musical score. The evangelists call us together telling us about the author of the score and how we are called to be in the orchestra together. Pastor-teachers serve as conductors, helping us understand what the author intended by his musical score and helping us learn to play our own different parts together in a way that complements one another and therefore produces something beautiful for God. Critically, The conductor isn't supposed to try to play all the instruments by himself. Let me say that again. The conductor isn't supposed to try to play all the instruments all by himself. The Lord of the church is giving us each individual gifts so that we can each play our own part. And it is the people of God as a whole who are to do the work of ministry. By the way, this doesn't just mean that the conductor isn't supposed to play all the parts. It means that each of us with our own gifts, while we're supposed to use them to the glory of God in ministry, are to be mindful that it's not the only gift that God has given. 
That is, if you're a drummer, you're not supposed to play so loud that no one can hear the flutes. See, part of your calling is to use your gifts for the glory of God. Part of your calling is to encourage your brothers and sisters to use their gifts, their own distinct personalities, to let them shine and come forward so that together we are not simply a bunch of random instruments, but rather as the family of God, we are a harmonious orchestra. Christ has subdued us to himself so that we would serve him. And part of how we serve Christ is by serving one another. It is by playing our own part in the orchestra, but part of it is by encouraging other people to shine in their roles as well. How long will that take? Verses 13 and 14 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Well, obviously, that means we're going to be doing this until Christ's second coming, right? We're not going to finish this in this present age. The pursuit of Christian unity is, in fact, a mark of spiritual maturity. Pressing on toward true Christian unity is a particularly urgent call upon us in our own day. Uh, There's a false sort of Christian unity that just says, let's water down all the doctrine. Let's not care that other people are are blessing sin. Beloved, that's a lie. That is not Christian unity to say we can all get together like that. that. That's a false form of ecumenism. But we should also realize that we live in a very consumeristic age, which means we live in a very individualistic age. God is saying it's not enough for you to care about yourself. You need to care about the whole church. You need to be working. We need to be working that we would come to a unity in the truth and a unity in love. As I say, many people talk about the church, but they intend, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, the church that they attend in terms of what they can get out of it. That is, they approach their church as consumers. I hope none of you will ever do that. You know, people talk about their church the way they talk about their local gym or Costco. And I love Costco. It's a wonderful place to shop. But the church is not a place where we go simply to get spiritual merchandise. We we are being brought together by our Lord as a family who belongs to each other. In Christ, we are members of each other. Therefore, we can never think about our church family simply in terms of what's in it. For me, we are called to pursue spiritual maturity, and one of the ways this spiritual maturity is manifested is in the way that we work toward unity in the faith and the growth of our entire church family in the knowledge of our God. Now, to be clear, there is nothing wrong with being a brand new Christian. There's nothing wrong with being an infant. I mean, nobody would look at Lucy, Lily, and Gordon and say, why isn't she more mature? She's three months old. She's a beautiful covenant child. 
And correspondingly, if you first come to faith in Christ, there's nothing wrong with you being a babe in Christ. In fact, you don't have any other choice. But the Bible is filled with callings and commands that we as the people of God would press on to maturity, that we would seek to grow up, that we would seek to put down deep roots into God's word. And we need to recognize that as a call upon our lives, and we need to respond using God's grace to grow into the maturity that he is calling us to do. If by God's grace you are a relatively mature Christian, part of your calling is to help keep the younger Christians from being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Now, that's actually many of you in this room. It turns out that mature Christians tend to come to evening worship, and uh, we get more immature Christians in the morning. That is always how it's going to work. And so I speak directly to you. Part of your calling is to keep those who are newer to the faith, weaker in the faith, from being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But it is also the responsibility of those of you who are less mature to strive to grow up, to come to a maturity in your faith, that you will be stable in yourself and a source of stability for others. Instead of just doing your own thing, Paul says in verse 15, we ought rather to be speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head that is into Christ. What does it mean to speak the truth in love? Um, I remember R.C. Sproul, it must be 30 years ago now, saying, whenever somebody comes to you and says, brother, I have something to tell you in love, run for your lives. That person is about to hurt you. And, and sadly, R.C. has a point. So let me say, first of all, speaking the truth in love, uh, opening up with, I have something to tell you in love, it is not a get-out-of-jail card or a permission slip for you to beat your brothers and sisters up. That is not speaking to each other in love. Biblical love is a disposition of the will whereby we are for someone else and we do for someone else what is in their best interest. So you have to be asking yourself, do my words do that? If they don't, you're not speaking to the other person in love. Let me give you that definition again. Biblical love is a disposition of the will whereby we are for someone else and do for someone else what is in their best interest. So are your words actually in this other person's best interest? Sometimes to build them up and to comfort them, perhaps to warn them if they're going on a very dangerous course. Now that can be really hard because they may not like that, but that is in fact speaking God's word speaking the truth in love. But speaking the truth in love is not about demonstrating that we are right. Uh, sometimes when uh, we kind of get a little bit of an argument, we want to prove that we're in the right, afterwards we say, well, I was just telling them the truth. Well, were you telling them the truth in love? Speaking the truth in love is not about demonstrating that we are right. It is about pointing other people towards Jesus and speaking in such a way that it helps us all 
to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is into Christ. For Christ is the beginning and the end of the Christian life, and he is everything in between. It is from him that the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. To me, I naturally think this fits together with Jesus' beautiful imagery where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Right? Abide in me, for apart from me, you can do nothing. That is our goal as we seek unity in the faith and as we seek each other's Christian maturity. We are not seeking to outshine the other branches. Please press that into your own thinking. This is not a competition to see which one of us is a better Christian. We are not to seek to outshine the other branches. That's not Christian maturity. Nor are we seeking that the other branches would become dependent upon us. Our goal is that every single branch would joyfully abide in the vine and therefore, by God's grace, produce much fruit. How are we to apply this passage? Well, let me give you the obvious point. Apply it to yourself. Right? Don't go home and say how someone else you know needed to hear this. Let us make sure that we apply these truths to our own lives. Um, you know the saying, please be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. Uh, that is a way that we ought to think about the rest of the people of God. When, when you see your brothers and sisters, and maybe they frustrate you because they aren't as mature as perhaps you are by the grace of God, but one of the things I do is I remind myself of what I was like 30 and 40 years ago. But even apart from that, it's fine to remember God isn't finished with them yet and to be patient with them. That is something that we're called to do as the people of God, to be long-suffering with one another as we encourage each other in truth and love to play our own distinct parts in Christ's orchestra. And yet, there is a sense in which we should be impatient with ourselves. We ought to press on to the high calling that is ours in Jesus Christ, grateful that Christ is subduing us to himself, grateful that Christ has brought us into his family, and grateful that Christ has given each of us a part to play in his symphony. Let us therefore press on to maturity with love and good works, that we would play our parts for the benefit of our brothers and sisters, and that we would play our parts unto the glory of God. Amen.